And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Really is pivotal for understanding just the whole chapter um, and even what follows after that. It really is foundational. Now, I found this uh, cartoon. It's by Mary Chambers. And it's where two couples, go ahead, Corey, are at a Bible study. And they're studying our passage this morning. And one of the ladies says, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. Well, that cartoon captures how many of us feel about Romans 6, 2, where Paul says that we died to sin. We would have to admit, I don't feel very dead to sin. Um, maybe there have been a few times when I felt kind of faint towards it, but dead? No way. So in Romans 6, Paul doesn't just say once here in verse 2 that, he, that we died to sin. He says it in some form in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 13. So if it seems like I'm repeating myself over the next couple of weeks, it's because Paul repeats himself. But he wants us to get it because apparently it's crucial when it comes to living a godly life. And yet it's very difficult to understand because I don't feel very dead to sin. In fact, I rarely feel fine, kind of faint. Now, commentators differ, but most agree that in Romans 6.1, Paul turns a corner here and he moves from the subject of justification, which we've been looking at, uh, you could call it salvation, to sanctification or how we grow in holiness. Paul begins a new theme here that he pursues through chapter 8, that if we have been justified by faith, how do we now grow in sanctification? Justification by faith, by faith dealt with the penalty of our sin. You remember God declared us not guilty. But how can we live a holy life in which sin's power is broken? Now, chapter 6 falls into two main sections. In verses 1 through 14, Paul addresses an objection that he knows will follow from what he's been teaching about God justifying sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any merit. He is especially responding to what he's just said in 520 that we saw last week, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We talked about that last week. Now, the anticipated response is, if God's response to is increased sin, um, it's, if his response to increased sin is to pour out superabundant grace, then maybe we should sin all the more so that God can be all the more gracious. Paul brought this up, uh, this same reaction to his teaching back in chapter 3, verse 8. He acknowledged that some were accusing him of saying, let us do evil that, that good may come. And his response there was, their condemnation is just. Now here in verse 2, his response is, by no means. Then he launches into an extended discussion of our being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, the second main section is verses 15 through 23. And he, Paul responds to another anticipated response to his teaching that we saw last week, that the law came in so that sin would increase, along with his comment in verse 14 that we are no longer under law but under grace. So the objection is seen there in verse 15. Shall we sin because we are not under law but grace? And his response is the same as verse 2, by no means. And then he develops an, an analogy from 
from slavery. We talk about being free. Uh, there's a sense in which you are never free. We'll talk about that when we get further in Romans chapter 6. But in verses 1 through 4, his main idea here is our union with Christ in his death and resur resurrection is foundational for our separation from sin and walking in newness of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are covering some uh, just some... Just heavy territory this morning that, that we conceptually don't understand, uh, Father, but you say that it's true. So I pray that you would help us to see it, to understand it, Father, to be able to walk in victory as a result of it. So we just commit this time to you and ask that you would bless it for your honor, for your glory, for your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as usual, I'm going to kind of go through the verse, the uh, our passage verse by verse and try to get our minds around what Paul is saying, and I'm going to use four different headings. So number one, there is a logical implication to reject, in other words, not to embrace. And here it is. Since God's response to increase sin is abundant grace, then we should sin more to get more grace. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's his question. And he says, by no means. Now, verse 1, it's a test of whether you have correctly understood Paul's message up to this point. If you've been tracking with him, he knows that you're going to be thinking, hmm, if God's response to his increased sin is abundant grace, then why not sin some more? Since God freely justifies not those who try hard, but rather those who do not work, and since he justifies those who are uh, not those who are good, but rather the ungodly, then why work at being good at all? Another form of it is, if God is gracious towards sinners, then I'll just sin and ask for his grace. Uh, poet W.H. Auden, he put it like this, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged, he says. But the point is, if salvation or justification by faith plus our good works, if that was the case, the objection that Paul anticipates here would never have come up. Or if we hedge in God's grace or tone it down, no one would dare to think what Paul knows that we will think if we heard him correctly. If we understand and teach grace Correctly, people will at least think what Paul anticipates here. And significantly, Paul doesn't modify his teaching that God justifies the ungodly apart from their works or that increased sin indeed does lead to abounding grace. And since he doesn't uh, change that, we should not either. Well, number two, there is a spiritual fact to know and believe. And it's this, in Christ we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. Now this is what I was talking about earlier. This is the verse. Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Getting a grip on this verse is going to carry us through the rest of the entire chapter. Now this happens to be a rhetorical question. It expects the answer, there is no way that those who have died to sin can still live in it. It should be obvious, dead men can't live in sin. But this raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? 
If Christians are dead to sin, then why do they sin? Can we attain sinless perfection in this life? If so, doesn't this statement imply that we attain this state of being dead to sin at the moment of conversion? And if not, do we have to work at being dead to sin? So what does Paul mean when he says that we died to sin? There are a number, of view, a number of views, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you through all of them. I'm going to tell you what it does not mean first, and then what I think that it does mean. Clearly, Paul does not mean that believers cannot sin or that somehow they are immune to temptation. How many of you feel immune to temptation? Some teach that if you go into a morgue and try to tempt that corpse to commit some sin, that you're going to fail because he's dead. Well, likewise, it is said Christians are dead to sin. It can't entice them. But apart from the obvious fact that there are no such Christians, and there have never been any, <laughs> such of you makes all of the moral commands in the Bible to be meaningless. Why command me to not lust if I can't lust because I'm dead to it? Why command me not to steal if I'm dead to greed? Why command me not to gossip if I cannot gossip because I'm dead to it? Besides, there are many examples in Scripture of otherwise godly men falling into serious sin. Noah, if you remember, he got drunk. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all lied. David, boy, he committed adultery and murder, and this was after he had written many of the Psalms. Peter denied the Lord and later acted in hypocrisy towards the Gentile believers in Antioch. Paul had to confront him. And in Romans 7, Paul shares his own struggles with sin. So he does not mean that believers cannot sin or that they are immune to temptation. So what does he mean? This, this is where that old saying, if, if you've, you, know, you may have heard this before, context is king. It means you really got to understand what's going on around the passage. So we're going to go back. Let's just go back to the last two weeks and think about this. We saw this in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, through the end of the chapter. Now, we did that in like two or three different sermons. But if you'll remember, all people are identified either with Adam under the reign of sin and death or with Christ under the reign of grace through righteousness. There are no other categories. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Now, by virtue of our physical birth, we all enter this world in Adam. His sin was imputed to us. When, when Adam sinned, we sinned. But when we trust in Christ, we are transferred from Adam's headship to Christ's headship. This is what you have to get your mind around. Just as Adam's one sin condemned us all, so Christ's one act of obedience on the cross justified all who receive his gracious gift of eternal life. So if you are in Christ, when he died on the cross, you died in him. It's not something that you feel. It, it, it is, it, it's a fact that is true of you simply because God says it is true. If Christ as our head died, we who are his body died in 
Him. This is our new status. This is our new position before God. Since Christ died to sin and we are now in Him, we died to sin. We derive the benefits of His death because we are now in Him. Now, in the Bible, death is not primarily cessation, meaning the end of something, but rather separation. At physical death, your soul is separated from your body. Well, when we died with Christ, listen, we were separated from the reign of death that came through Adam, and we were put under Christ's reign of righteousness. That's how we have died to sin. Sin's reign over us is broken. As a result, Paul implies by this rhetorical question that we cannot continue in sin or live in it. Now, he's not talking about committing acts of sin, but rather about living in sin as a way of life, which is indicative of those who are in Adam. Those in Adam, that's all they know how to do is a life of sin. Now, I think 1 John 3, 9 says the same thing from a slightly different perspective. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, John is not saying that believers cannot sin at all. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, he said that if anyone claims that he has no sin, he is deceiving himself and the truth is not in him. I actually met a lady at TMH who claimed to have never sinned. I just took her right to this verse because verse 10 says something very similar. He says that two verses after verse 8, 10, he says, if anyone says that he has not sinned, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. Guess what, folks? We sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that if we, if we sin, if and when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He means that those born of God cannot continue in their old way of life, which was characterized by sin. The new birth removes them from that. So both John and Paul mean that those who are in Christ cannot continue in sin as a way of life. When we are saved by God's grace, he places us in a new realm under the reign of grace where we now walk in the light as he is in the light. That's John's wording. We now obey God. We keep his commandments as our pattern, as our habit, as, as what comes natural to us. So Paul says that we need to know this fact and believe it. In Christ we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. Now he knows that's hard because like I said, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 13 all say in some form or another that we have died to sin. Well, number three, there is a spiritual analogy that, that Paul talks about here to help you understand, and that is your baptism. That pictures your union with Christ in his death. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, verse 3, it, it, it generates a lot of controversy. Is Paul talking about water baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit? If he means water baptism, is he saying that the act of baptism itself conveys these benefits? Now, 
sparing you the, the plethora of debates. I think that Paul is referring to the spiritual reality that takes place at salvation, which water baptism symbolizes. So he's talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit when we are indwelt. Now, keep in mind that the apostles, they all associated saving faith with water baptism to such an extent that the concept of an unbaptized believer, that would have been foreign to them. When people in that day professed faith in Jesus Christ, they expressed it by being baptized in water. Paul assumes that all of the Christians in Rome have been baptized. He says all of us who have been baptized. That means all of us believers. Now, since at that time, baptism usually followed faith in Christ rather quickly, the thought of distinguishing between spirit baptism, which happens at the moment of salvation, and water baptism, that maybe not would have even occurred in Paul. Now, not to be controversial, but there's, I'm just going to address this real quick. There's no evidence in the New Testament that infant baptism was ever practiced, nor are there any verses to support such a practice. The entire argument for infant baptism rests on the assumption that has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Now, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, it links some aspects of circumcision with baptism, but in those same verses, it also specifically links faith in Christ with baptism. The clear pattern of the New Testament is that a person first believed in Christ and then expressed that faith in water baptism. Now, in, in, in modern evangelicalism, uh, we've wrongly replaced baptism with walking the aisle. I, I remember um, uh, Capitol Hill, Mark Dever. He was being interviewed. This was whew, 20 years ago when he took over that church. And they asked him uh, something, or he said something to the effect that he was not going to do invitations and a couple of the older members were kind of aghast, like, what do you mean you're not going to do invitation? He goes, how will we know when they were saved? And he goes, when they get baptized. <laughs> it's not when they walk the aisle. Baptism is the expression of the faith, okay? Here's the bottom line. If you have believed in Christ as your Savior, you should be baptized in water to confess that faith. Now, what does baptism picture? The main thought is that of identification. The word clearly means to immerse. Even John Calvin admitted this in his institutes. It was used of people being drowned or of ships being sunk. To be baptized into Christ's death means to be totally identified with Christ in his death. When he paid the penalty of death for sin, we paid the penalty in him. When he died to sin, conquering its power, we who believe in him died to sin and its power. Now, why does Paul emphasize not only Christ's death, but also the fact that we were buried with him through baptism? Well, scholars agree that burial is mentioned because it confirms that death has actually occurred. I mean, it's not normal to bury a living person. <laughs> the dead are the ones that's buried. To say that we were buried with Christ means we really did die with him. Baptism by immersion pictures this when a person goes under the water. That's the burial. What happens if we were to hold him under the water for too long? A death would occur, right? They'd really die 
immersion pictures this spiritual reality. When we believed in Christ, we became fully identified in Him in His death and burial. Death and burial. We are united with Him in that historic action. Now, Paul doesn't here specifically say that coming up out of the water pictures being raised up with Christ in his resurrection, but I believe it's implied. As I understand him, he uses baptism as an illustration to help us understand our union with Christ. I mean, you understand this is where we get our baptismal language, right? Buried with Christ in baptism, what? Raised to walk. That's next. That's that's the fourth one we're going to look at, but raised to walk in newness of life. It pictures our death, our burial, our resurrection with Christ, which took place historically when Christ died, was buried, and was raised on the third day on behalf of the people whom he redeemed. It was applied to us the instant that we believe, but we express it symbolically in water baptism. Well, finally, number four, there's a spiritual fact to believe and act upon. And that is, since we are uni united with Christ in his resurrection, we should walk in newness of life. Paul says, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, Christ was raised bodily from the grave, not just spiritually. But spiritually, we were in him so that when he raised in victory over sin and death, we were raised too. Now, we're not going to receive our resurrection bodies, which are uh, immune, if you want, from sin. We're completely free from sin at that point. We're not going to get that body until Jesus returns. But before then, the action on our part as a result of our spiritual resurrection with Christ is that we should walk in newness of life. Now, Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. That's an unusual expression. I would have expected him to say by the power of God. He was resurrected by the power of God. Most com commentators say that glory is used here as a synonym for power. In other words, they kind of mean the same thing. But here's, here's the truth. Paul didn't say power. He used the word glory. Spurgeon points out that glory is a grander word because it includes the display of, uh, of many of the Father's attributes, not just his power in raising Christ from the dead. The word Father, rather than God, that implies his great love for his Son and for us in giving up his Son to death. The wisdom of God was displayed by allowing Christ to suffer on our behalf before, um, uh, before rising, raising him from the dead. The Father's justice is displayed at the cross and the resurrection. His faithfulness to his promise not to allow his Holy One to undergo decay was seen in the resurrection. And of course, in the resurrection, we also see his power. Well, as a result of our union with Christ, in his resurrection, we are now to walk in newness of life. This means that our new walk in Christ should be very distinct from our life before Christ. We should develop transformed minds, Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 12, through God's Word. So that our whole worldview lines up with Scripture. Our motives for why we do what we do should no longer be selfish, but rather for God's glory. 
Our attitudes, especially in trials, should not be complaining. That's the easy way out. No, rather we should be thankful to God. Our emotions, they should be marked by joy and hope in the Lord. Our character should be developing the fruit of the Spirit. Our, our use of time and money should be managed in light of eternal values. And we should be walking in consistent obedience to God's commandments, which, as Scripture says, are for our good. Well, the description of this newness of life as a walk, to, you know, walk in newness, that implies a long, steady, gradual process. Paul is not talking about sinless perfection here, but rather a, a direction of life in which, over time, we sin less and less, Right? We should be, look, each day we should be conformed just a little bit more in the image of Christ. So you look at the long haul. Have things fallen off and they don't bug you as much sin-wise as they did at one time? That's because you're becoming more like Christ. Now some people, and I don't know, only God can answer this, why this is so. Some people it's like this. Man, they're saved, that life is gone, they are on a different trajectory and it's like they're a rocket. Other people, it's like this. And I can't tell you why, okay? But we want to see a trend. That, I hope my arm is going up. Is it a little bit? That's what I'm trying to do. Hope we're, hopefully there is an upward trend over time, and that's simply because we are being conformed to the image of the Son. Well, I understand that this concept of being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ is difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to apply. We're going to look at it further in, the week, in a few weeks that follow, for the few weeks that follow, simply because Paul does. But let me conclude by giving you three applications based on this text. Number one, do not presume on God's grace as permission to sin. Many Christians stupidly, and, and I use that word purposely, they stupidly think, I can go ahead and sin and just get forgiven. After all, I'm under grace. Now, the reason that's stupid is because it ignores what we looked at last week. That sin doesn't move in to help you accomplish your objectives. It's not a nice, quiet roommate, peaceful roommate. No, when it comes in, it comes in to reign over your life. And that reign is a reign of death. God's grace does not mean that he is tolerant of your sin. Grace does not excuse sloppy living. God is committed to your holiness, right? And if you play loose with sin, he will discipline you, perhaps severely. Well, number two, if you have trusted Christ, let me encourage you, if you have not already, make a distinct break with your past life and declare it publicly in baptism. Now, becoming a Christian means burning your, all of your bridges to your past life of sin, if you have drugs in your possession, destroy them. If you have alcohol and you're tempted to get drugged, pour it down the drain. If going to bars tempts you to drunkenness or picking up loose women or whatever, stop going there. If internet porn is a problem, get some accountability. Get a system of accountability in your life. Follow the example of the new believers in Ephesus. Do you know what they did? They burned 50,000 days wages worth of magic books, according to Acts 19. They burned them because they now had Christ. 
Then confess your new faith in water baptism. Well, number three, meditate often on your union with Christ and what it means. You are now in Christ. Think about it and act accordingly. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the example of the slaves who were freed by President Lincoln during the Civil War. Do you remember the Emancipation Proclamation? It declared them to be free. Now, many of the slaves had not known any other life. They were born slaves and they had lived their entire lives under a cruel master. But now they died to slavery because of this proclamation. They were declared free. But many of them didn't feel free. When they saw their old master coming, they may have begun to shake right in their place. And if he told them to do something, gave them a command, they might still obey it. But they didn't have to obey him. His power over them was broken. They did not have to live under that tyranny any longer. They could walk in newness of life. Well, even so, in Christ, you have died to sin. You're no longer to live under its power. You don't have to obey it. Is there a war going on? Oh my goodness, yes. Paul's gonna talk about that in Romans 7. We see it over in Galatians chapter five. Yes, there's this war between the spirit and the flesh. But do you know that that's one of the signs of that you actually belong to God is because there is a war now? <laughs> because you're trying to do right and the flesh is trying to drag you back, but you're trying to do away with it. So there is this inward battle going on. Well, you have been raised up in Christ so that you can now walk in newness of life. Think about your new position in him. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that's the foundation for separation from sin and walking in this newness of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you again just for your abundant love for us. Your mercy, it seems, knows no end. Your grace um, is, is just beyond our imagination. But Father, uh, it's in that grace that you give us power through the death and resurrection of your Son, now being united to him, that allows us to break free from our slavery to sin. Father, we're always gonna struggle with it, but over time, we are going to look more and more like your son until that day that he comes again and that, 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 that the conforming will be complete. We will look like Jesus and sin will no longer have any hold on us. We long for that day, but until then, we ask that you would help us to walk in that newness of life. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning, if you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you are still in Adam, okay? You, the, the, the sin that you have uh, behind you, that you have lived up to this point, uh, it, it is dragging at you and it is pulling at you. There could be something inside of you that's saying, hey, you need to listen. That's probably the Holy Spirit. He may be at work in your heart. I encourage you this morning to follow that, to follow the Holy Spirit, Forget about the drag of what, is, is, has, what, what you've done behind, your sins behind. You need to leave those behind. We call that repentance. You ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's actually the one that you have sinned against. David understood this. Even after his sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. He realized that he had, he had um, offended God. 
Well, you need to realize that your sin has separated from you God, separated you from God, and it has offended him. And the only way you ask him for forgiveness, and then you trust in what Christ has done, what we've been talking about this morning, the fact that he was that he died on, on, on our behalf, that he was raised, um, you know, for our justification, Paul says. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I encourage you to turn to him. If you don't know, if you don't know what that's about, please come talk to me. We'll sit down and I'll show you in Scripture what it means to be born again, okay? It's not difficult, but you have to do it. I encourage you to do it today. If you're a believer, I hope that you understand now that when, we, when Scripture says that we are dead to sin, like I said, it's not something that you feel. This is something that Paul declares to be true about you because God says it so. When Christ died, we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the death. And now we walk in the light as he is in the light. The darkness is still going to come for us, but now we have the Holy Spirit within us. You remember what uh, uh, John says? Um, the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We can have victory over sin. It doesn't have to defeat you. Is it going to? Yeah. And what's so funny is just when you think you have a particular sin licked, God kind of lets you slip one more to understand once more that, hey, um, you still need me. <laughs> you still need my grace. You still need my mercy. I hope you're walking in God's mercy and grace today. And I also hope that you're on that path of being conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.